Hey everyone, we are back from our hiatus and we are returning with Jason Brown. Jason's stories and essays have won several awards and appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's Best American Short Stories, The LA Times, The Guardian, The Pushcart Prize Anthology, and The Missouri Review. Several of his stories have been performed as part of NPR's Selected Shorts and his collection, Why the Devil Chose New England for His Work, was chosen as a summer reading pick by National Public Radio. He will be accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Hello, I'm Jason Brown, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm going to be reading from uh, my story, A Faithful But Melancholy Account of Several Barbarities Lately Committed, which is from a collection of stories by the same name. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. This story that you're about to hear was originally published in the Best American Short Stories 2021, edited by Curtis Settenfeld. A faithful but melancholy account of several barbarities lately committed. The day before my sister's pretend wedding, family gathered in Maine for our annual meeting at my grandfather's island house so he could tell us how much of a disappointment we'd been. Dressed like a clam digger in rubber boots, filthy canvas pants, and an old sweatshirt full of pipe ash holes, he rose from his wing chair and levered himself to his feet with his cane. Stains extended from his collar to his knees because at mealtimes he used himself as a plate. Like other monarchs, he may have confused menace with majesty and mistaken the wary looks of his subjects cowering in the wicker for devoted affection. He delivered his judgment, not in words, but through his leaky blue eyes, which lingered on each one of us before coming to rest on my sister. I am going to die, he announced, and lifted Julia, his corgi, into his arms. The wicker groaned. Of course he was going to die at some point. He was 94. Are you ill? my aunt asked with his flushed cheeks and one bony hand gripping the cane as if it were a sword, he didn't look sick, just spiteful. Most years, he accused us all of a failure of cheerfulness and left it at that. No, there is nothing wrong with me. I'm going to die, that's all. I'm going to die on Saturday. But that's tomorrow, my sister said. I'm getting married here tomorrow. Well, you can go ahead and do whatever you want to, he said from the far side of the room to where my fiancée, Melissa, stood next to a row of windows framing the Atlantic Ocean. Who was that woman, he asked. Melissa raised her ink-black eyebrows and looked at me. Is that why there's a big hole in the ground, my sister said, tipping her tennis racket west? We'd all notice the hole, three feet deep, a little bigger than a coffin, on the way up from the dock, 
but no one had mentioned it until now in the hope that ignoring it would fill it in. It's not even in the graveyard, my sister added. You're not putting me in the ground with all those people, my grandfather said to me for some reason. Those are our ancestors, and one of those people was your wife, Uncle Alden said. Is, is my wife. You're going to kill yourself on the day I get married, my sister said. She and my father had distinguished themselves as the only two people to stand up to my grandfather. My father lived in Oregon and hadn't been back to Maine for a decade. Of course I'm not going to kill myself. Well, you can't just decide to die, my sister said. I can do whatever I damn well please. We all lowered our heads, except for my sister, who rolled her eyes. I am getting in that hole on Saturday, and someone, my grandfather added, nodding at me, will cover me with dirt when I stop breathing. Well, why him, Uncle Alden said. Why does he get to bury you? Because he inherits the house. As of Saturday, the whole thing belongs to him. A great sigh seemed to rise from the floorboards, and Uncle Alden's head flopped forward. I felt dizzy and saturated, like someone who just downed 11 seltzer and lemons at a sports bar to prove he could sit there and not drink. At one time before my first trip to Cope in Tucson, I'd spent every summer here on the island crammed into this 18th century falling down cape with my sister and grandparents and cousins, all people I loved but also vaguely resented. I had always assumed that one of us, probably my Uncle Alden, would own it someday, but not me. I lived in Tucson and had no money. As of Saturday, my grandfather added as an afterthought, whatever John says goes around here. Unaccustomed to power, I didn't know if I should stand. Several cousins stormed out. A few climbed the stairs into what would apparently, as of Saturday, no longer be their bedrooms. I looked around at the old plaster, the whole house desperately clinging to the central stone chimney. A warehouse of colonial junk surrounded us. Old paintings of people strangled by white collars on the walls of the parlor. A powder horn from Queen Anne's War on the sill. Sea chests full of squirrel shit. Calfskin logbooks detailing encounters with storms off Cape Horn and run-ins with the native people of Sin Jamaica. Along the hewn oak beam, over a hundred corks had been nailed to mark marriages, deaths, the New Year's Eves spent freezing by the fireplace. Uncle Alden, who built uncomfortable chairs out of ash, which he offered at prices that successfully deterred their purchase, and my cousins, a couple of local teachers, a boat builder, and an organic farmer, had long feared that my sister, at first some kind of banker and now I really didn't know what, would financially pick them off from her Riverview condo in Manhattan and one day rebuild our sagging island house into a summer retreat for megalomaniacs. They would see my grandfather's announcement as part of my sister's scheme. Okay, my sister said, smiling. She raised her tennis racket and excused herself. For years, she'd been the least liked member of the family. But now that my grandfather had said he would leave the house to me, I figured the target might shift. Melissa caught my eye and I signaled that I'd meet her outside. With everyone else gone from the room, my grandfather took out his pipe and clamped it between his teeth, 
The pipe was empty. He no longer smoked, not since he'd been diagnosed with emphysema 15 years ago. He had probably not, as he claimed, cured himself of the disease. Though as he bore down on 100, he had no trouble biking around on his motor-assisted adult tricycles, one for the island, one for town. I had not grown healthier with age either. I chose this moment to perform a self-check, which my fiancée in her second year of graduate study in social work at the University of Arizona had taught me to do. I could barely keep my eyes open. In response to stress, I always fell asleep. On a good day, the medications I took rendered me as lethargic as a snake digesting a gopher. If not for my job and Melissa, I would have slept 14 hours a day. I did not feel up to the challenge of whatever my grandfather and my sister had in mind for the weekend, and I had to will myself not to climb the stairs and lie down in my old room. You don't know what it's like, my grandfather said to me under his breath. What? For everyone to want you dead. No one wants you dead, I lied. Bullshit, he said, but I appreciate the sentiment. He tapped the empty bowl of his pipe on his palm as if to clear out yesterday's ashes. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from Matthias Tell's Breathe In, Breathe Out. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Jason Brown. And now we return from our break. I found Melissa outside talking to my braless cousin, Bayberry, who leaned against my grandfather's island tricycle and raised her eyebrows. Act one, tomorrow, act two. Who's that man your sister's marrying? William Rollo St. Launston, I said, reluctantly supporting the illusion that a real wedding would go down in the morning. No one else in the family knew that my sister and Rollo had already married at a secluded Maui beach a year ago. I hadn't been invited. No one had. That's a beautiful necklace, Bayberry said, as she leaned into Melissa's personal space and squinted at her Our Lady of Guadalupe pendant. Thanks, Melissa said, and took a wary step back. I said goodbye to Bayberry, took Melissa by the hand, and led us down the trail. The island house was full, and the horsehair mattresses contained the bones of too many chipmunks. 
so I had reserved a hotel. In the shower at the Holiday Inn and Bath, I could scald all the stupid things I'd heard today out of my brain. We reached the dock and boarded my grandfather's skiff to shuttle the quarter mile to the mainland. Sitting across from each other on bench seats, I was reminded, not for the first time, of the disconcertingly erotic fact that we were the same height, our shoulders the same width. Melissa had the softest skin on the planet, framed by her precision-cut bob feathering in the breeze. On the way up the hill to the parking lot, Melissa touched my arm with the tips of her finger and asked me if I was going to throw up. I had thrown up the month before, for no apparent reason, at a party hosted by a friend of hers. Ever since then, she'd been waiting for it to happen again. Maybe I would, I didn't know. I turned to face the island, a low fur-top mound, ringed by jagged granite and dotted by shingled cottages. Every winter when I was young, and my grandfather and I motored over from the mainland to fell a Christmas tree, steam poured off the ocean into the frigid air. It's mine, I said, a mostly false statement, and pointed to the island. I mean, you know, not the whole thing, I confessed. Though my ancestor John Josiah Howland and his wife Fear Chipman had swindled the island from the Abenaki Chief Robin Hood in a 1640 land deal worth a hogshead of rum and 12 pumpkins, over the years, each generation had lost a few acres. Now we owned only the farmhouse and the field sloping to the shore. Melissa, not my real fiance, not in the sense of someone who'd agreed to marry me, looked at my forehead. Did she know how I was feeling? That how I felt depended on how she felt? When I'd asked her to marry me two months ago and she'd parried with, I need to think about that, I'd thought the trip to Maine might bring us closer together. And I had felt closer during the flight and the car ride up from Boston, so close that I had unconsciously shifted her answer into the yes box. Now, though, I didn't feel close at all. Maybe she would be impressed that I was, or soon would be, owner of the last few acres of the family homestead. On the mainland, after we buckled ourselves into the Kia, I hit the gas and we shot out of the parking lot. Under stress, I sometimes exhibited diminished motor control. I wondered if I was relapsing into what Melissa had called a disorganized attachment disorder, DAD, the description for which she'd read aloud from the DSM-IV. I did feel systemically dysregulated. Also, I felt excessively friendly and wished to continue expressing these feelings in a syrupy, bizarre, ineffectual manner. We're not rich, you know, I said. I had jumped the reality track on the way up from Boston and now clung to the facts as a nostrum for all my natural impulses. You know, my sister and I grew up with my grandparents. My great-grandparents lost everything in the Dowell factory in Lewiston. 
Anyway, you can't understand the family without understanding my grandfather. Neither a monarch, nor, to his great relief, so he claimed, a Kennebec Journal local person of note, he was a retired high school teacher in Vaughan, a town 25 miles upriver from the island. To us, he was the old man. The name, the dog, the cane, the silver star nailed to the wall in the back bathroom. And of course, the title to the house on the island, the last thing of value owned by our family. She put her hand on my knee. You have boats, she said. You are people with boats and an island with your name on it. Where I come from, people have broken cars. Melissa had grown up with a single mother in Douglas, Arizona, a place I privately thought of as a scary DMZ, filled with guard towers, giant border patrol assault vehicles, and attack helicopters roaming the lunar border with Mexico. But we had broken cars too, I said. Don't worry, I'm impressed. I don't want you to be impressed, I lied. Hey, this is my New England vacation, a break from the heat. Melissa traveled through time like an emotional space station that could go years without resupply. Your eyes are weirdly geckoed, she said. Ah, I don't feel so good, I said. Melissa covered her left ear. Stop shouting, she said. I'm sitting right next to you. I also sometimes lost control of my volume, as Melissa put it. Well, several weeks ago, when I asked you, when I said I wanted to, when I, when I told you I was trying not to say love or propose, two words she objected to, I just hope uh, to eat a lobster, Melissa said. Me, I do, before I get another boat ride. We stared out our windows for a while. It's exciting. The house is really yours, John Howland of Howland Island. Well, this sounded better than John Howland, adjunct community college instructor. Back in Arizona, where no one gave a shit about New England, I could forget all that John Howland stuff. But here, the name John Howland also belonged to my grandfather and his father, etc., in a more or less unbroken line of Johns going back 12 generations to the John Howland who accidentally fell off the stern of the Mayflower in a storm, but thank God, somehow managed to pull himself aboard before landing in Plymouth so the rest of us could someday exist. Whenever I'm back here, I feel as if I should be doing something more important with my life, I said. Why, because you think you're more important than the people who do what you do? Melissa didn't understand, but I was encouraged by the way her gaze lingered on my jawline as we drove to Bath. When we first started dating, she claimed to admire my jawline. Now that I own property, maybe we could have little John Howlands, what my grandfather had always expected. According to Melissa, I often felt so much that I had difficulty intuiting how other people felt, which didn't bother her, she claimed, because she didn't believe in codependency and taking care of my feelings or telling me how to live. Even though, wasn't this the point of a relationship? To become less partial? The other night, I dreamed that she and I were hiking in the Tucson mountains when a giant tire, the kind used on mega dump trucks, bowled over a rock, picked her up, and carried her surprised face down the side of a cactus-covered valley. I hadn't told her about the dream yet, probably because I thought she would say that the tire represented a wedding ring 
and that the dream expressed my rage at her lack of desire for a conventional commitment, which I thought I wanted, but she claimed I didn't, at least not really. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from Matthias Tell's Breathe In, Breathe Out. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Jason Brown. And now we return for our final chapter. The ceremony was about to start. As I headed for the spot where I had last seen my grandfather, I felt a huge hole open up in my chest, and some unknown essential parts of myself spilled into the grass. I smelled champagne in the sea air. I hadn't had a drink or swallowed any unprescribed pills in five years, but I also hadn't been to an AA meeting in over half that time. I rarely, if ever, thought about drinking or pills, even when Melissa and I occasionally went to bars socially, which we sometimes did with her friends to hear music. As I passed by a table, my hand scooped up a flute of champagne and emptied the glass into the back of my throat. Before I realized what I'd done, I'd started to sway drunkenly, even though I wasn't drunk. I wasn't even pleasantly dizzy. Five years of sobriety down the drain. I half expected my head to explode or the grass under my feet to spontaneously combust. But the sky looked the same as it had a few minutes before. I picked up another flute. A fuse had been lit. Either I would go looking for Oxy when we got back to Tucson or I wouldn't. Sipping, I took stock of the house, the glazing peeling off the window mullions. Feeling sick to my stomach, I poured out the half-empty flute. With the sound of the miniature's voice following me, I circled behind the house to look for my grandfather. Along the forest floor, a new generation of trees had grown knee-high, where light filtered through the canopy. The dew clinging to the branches stained my pants as I ran my palm over the soft feathers of the needles. I remembered having walked this way many times at every stage of my life. The tickling thrum that ran from my hand, up my arm, and along my back. The rich smell of pine sap, musty loam, and salt air. Other than the height of the trees, everything here had remained the same. I paused at the overgrown cellar hole, where one of my great-grandfathers had had his scalp removed by an Abenaki, and where his two teenage sons, returning from fishing to find their father, mother, and younger brother lying dead, shot two of the Abenakis, hacked another to death, and chased off the one survivor. They turned in the Abenaki scalps to the Massachusetts government and put the money toward materials to build a schooner. I reached the far side of the house and spotted the caretaker's truck next to the grave my grandfather had paid someone to dig. As promised, my grandfather lay in the bottom with his arms crossed over his chest. Sitting on his stomach, looking up at me, Julia licked her gray muzzle and eyeballed my empty hands. My grandfather's nostrils flared and his eyes shot open, pulsing blue crystals and bloodshot whites. John, he said, God damn it. He seemed angry with me, presumably for interrupting his death. It's not working, he said, 
and gazed up at me like a distressed child. He lifted Julia under his arm and tried to pull himself out of the hole with a pine limb. I offered my hand, but he slapped it away. When he started to fall backwards, I wrapped my arms around his chest. Lift me up, for God's sake. I planted my heels and struggled backward. We hovered over the hole for a moment and tumbled against a tree with our arms wrapped around each other. My face pressed against his cheek. He groaned as if I just stomped on his toe and scrambled away from me on all fours to lean against the caretaker's truck. My grandfather and I lay in our sides facing each other. People in our field were quiet. The surf splashed with every other breath. The tendons and muscles in my lower back had seized and a gash below my elbow bled onto my white shirt. I hadn't noticed the injury when my grandfather and I fell over, but I felt it now. I'm on a lot of medication, I confessed. Does it help? My grandfather asked. The wedding guests started to clap and leave their seats. As a way I sensed of not looking at me, my grandfather raised his bony hand and shaded his eyes to survey the crowd. Women in ankle-length dresses and men in dark suits spilled over the grass. Who are all these goddamn people, he demanded. It's a, it's a wedding, I said. Yes, but who are they? Where the hell did they come from? The muscles twisted under the creases and folds of his face, and I felt what he felt, revulsion at these strangers. Jesus, he said, what am I gonna do? I turned away from him to face the beach where four kids played on a pile of driftwood. Sandy-haired, somewhere between the ages of five and eight, they must have come with the guests. A woman my age, their mother or maybe a nanny, sat on a rock watching over them. My feeling that they trespassed had less to do with my inability to recognize them or the fact that the beach belonged to our family than with the sense that they threatened to eclipse my memories of being their age. They removed their shoes, rolled up their pants, and inched forward as a group into the shallows. Wheels crunched over branches, my grandfather on his tricycle slipping through the trees. I rose to my feet and jogged down the trail after him. With his cane stuck in the holster, he pedaled along the slope of Devereaux's field and turned left on the trail to the landing. Julia sat in the rear basket watching me slowly gain ground. As I pulled even with him, he looked through the trees to the west, in the direction of the car he wasn't licensed to use anymore, his home on 2nd Street in Vaughan, where he'd grown up, and all the people he'd known since birth, most of whom were now in the ground at Oak Hill Cemetery. I don't want the house, I called after him. The house is mine, he roared at me. In taking his eyes off the path, he almost veered into the ditch and had to slow to regain control. For a moment, I thought he might stop, but then the tricycle sped up and bumped over the ruts, leaving me behind. I recovered my breath and shuffled the rest of the way to the landing, where I found the tricycle ditched next to a tree. Across the channel, my grandfather tied up to the mainland dock and hefted Julia out of the skiff. The whole process took him much longer than it once had. He wrapped his arms around the cleat and pulled himself face down onto the planks. Julia licked his cheek. When he didn't move for more than a minute, I thought maybe he had accomplished his goal after all. A moment later, though, 
He pushed himself to his knees and rose to his feet. From my right, I heard Melissa call my name. She was standing on the boathouse porch. I couldn't find you at the ceremony, she said, so I went looking. Her leather-soled shoes dangling from one hand, she seemed to float over the rocky ground as she drew near. Her skin pulsed around a mosquito bite almost exactly in the middle of her forehead. She was beautiful, perfect. Can we go to the reception now? I'm hungry, she said. Are you going to marry me, I said, my voice rising in my throat. She grimaced and lifted my elbow to look at the cut. The bleeding had stopped, but my arm still stung. Across the water, Julia barked at my grandfather's side. He took one excruciating step, rested over the railing with his mouth open, took another step, and paused to look back at me. Melissa, I said, my face growing hot. What am I going to do? You'll live, Melissa said, as she let go of my arm and laid her cold palm against my cheek, just like the rest of us. Thank you to Jason Brown for reading. Jason's published three books of short stories, Driving the Heart and Other Stories from Norton Random House, Why the Devil Chose New England for His Work by Open City Grove Atlantic, and a faithful but melancholy account of several barbarities lately committed. We deeply encourage you to please check out Jason Brown's writing. Also, thank you to Sprout City Studios in Eugene, Oregon, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance is by Matt Keeley and Jesse Adler from the Podglomerate. Social media help is from Sylvia Beltil. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Thanks for tuning in so far this season. We just got a few more episodes left. You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also write to me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. We'll see you next week. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.